Welcome to the Master Your Mix podcast, helping engineers, producers, and artists create professional recordings and mixes, even from home. I'm your host, Mike and Davina. Let's get started. Hey, welcome to the Master Your Mix podcast. My name is Mike and Davina, and thanks for hanging out with me today. Today, my guest is Doug McBride, and if you're not familiar with Doug, he is the founder and chief engineer at Gravity Studios in Chicago. He has worked with artists such as Izzy Stradlin, Veruca Salt, Smashing Pumpkins, Fall Out Boy, and a whole bunch more. And in today's episode, we talk a lot about creating big, natural-sounding recordings. If you ever have listened to any of Doug's recordings, you'll notice that they feel really big, really natural. He does talk about adding samples and stuff like that in this episode, but Despite that, his recordings still sound very natural. They're not that, you know, like CGI kind of approach to working on music like a lot of other engineers have. You know, instead, it's very natural. And in this interview, he gets into a lot of his techniques for retaining that natural sound and things that you can do to make sure that you get that out of your home studio. We also discuss things like how to get your background vocals to sound really big and clear as well. Again, if you listen to Doug's recordings, his background vocals always sound really wide and full, but you'll learn some interesting tips that Doug shares here all about panning and why you might not want to always pan 100% left and right and how it might actually impact your songs down the road. So in this interview, we get into so much good stuff. This is a great interview. I think you're going to really enjoy it. So with that said, let's just jump right into it. Doug McBride, thank you so much for being on the Master Your Mix podcast. How's it going? Good. Awesome. For people who might not be familiar with who you are or what you do, can you give us a little background on all that stuff and how you ultimately got into music production and mixing and mastering and all the stuff that you're working on? Sure. Well, I'm in Chicago, Illinois, uh, where I've always been. And um, I I started a small studio when I was 24 years old. Gravity Studios, and we just celebrated our 30th year in Amazing. August. Congrats. Thanks. It's a long time. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I was a singer-songwriter when I was in high school and junior high, played guitar, and then got a four-track recorder, a four-track cassette recorder for my 15th birthday, I think it was. And so I, uh, I had a drum machine and a bass, a cheap bass, so I'd record you know, drum machine on track one, bass, and acoustic guitar on track three, and then bounce those to track four in order to give me three more tracks to do vocal, background vocal. Mm-hmm. And um, recorded over 100 songs that I would write, and, you know, of course, uh, some of which were, I'm sure, were horrible. But uh, I enjoyed the process of, of recording and coming up with these ideas and using the... Uh, uh, crude instruments that I had and slowly but surely I'd get, you know, better instruments slowly and and um just really uh the uh, I played shows, I was in different bands uh as well. Um most often as guitar and vocal. And then when I was in went to college in Ohio at Wittenberg University and during that time I'd play in the student pub and play most often play just guitar and sing and you know half covers, half originals and um, enjoyed that, but there was a degree of, of uh, anxiety about performing. I just was not a natural, really, per- with regard to performing, but I really loved um, the process of recording and coming up with ideas and developing songs and choosing arrangements. And and um, I was always 
happy to be able to take a moment to figure out parts, even if I wasn't, say, a good piano player. I, if if you have the luxury of being the only one in the room and using your own gear, then you can poke around until you come up with part <laughs> that you find to be inspiring, even if it's extremely simple. And um, so my songs in general were relatively straightforward and somewhat simple to, to create, but there was enough nuance and enough arrangement and enough sophistication that that people who heard the stuff generally liked it. So uh, let's see. So I I made a four-track recording, a four-song cassette um, that I got some positive feedback on it. got a little bit of airplay back in my college days. And then when I got out of college, I uh, got an internship at Chicago Recording Company, which was and still is, I think, the biggest studio in Chicago. There's like Back in those days, it was a little bigger than it is now, but it had like four music studios and then like nine voiceover studios where they did commercials and stuff like that. And um, so I was on the on the music side of things, and it was a real heyday for that studio. They were just really busy. A lot of producers and engineers from out of town um, would come into Chicago to do projects and book a month or a week or whatever. And so I was, and there was a lot of turnover. So I, I kind of was thrown into thrown into action pretty early, and assisted. For instance, with like my first ten albums were basically assisting uh, for Steve Albini on different projects. So oh wow! Helmet, Helmet, and Urge Overkill, and Jesus Lizard, and some really neat records. And um, so not that bad was to have some of your first re- first uh, projects. <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, it was Chicago. There was a, I mean, Chicago still has some exciting stuff going on, but there was, there were certain, over the last 30 years, there have been periods of time where it was really undeniably the most interesting place in the world for music. And that was uh, the early 90s were one of those times. And Mm. so, um, so yeah, so there was a bunch of those records and, and then um, I would get more opportunity to engineer as opposed to assisting. And got to work with Cheap Trick and then Izzy Stradlin, uh, an album with him, who he'd previously been in Guns N' Roses, and a couple other uh, kind of big-name artists, as well as doing like a few days with Sting and a few days with um, other kind of big-name artists. Uh, and, well, you know, one of the things that—it's it's a funny anecdote, but one of the things I learned um, was that it's—being uh, someone who has experienced anxiety— it was uh, helpful uh, to be completely overworked and fatigued when you went to work with someone famous because it was hard to – I didn't tend to get as anxious when I was just completely exhausted. <laughs> so so I, uh, that, that was something I realized. I can, I can pull this off working with this famous artist that I used to listen to when I was growing up or whatever because I'm – and working so many hours because that was part of the deal in those days was working a hundred hours a week, you know, just going, going, going. Which is funny because you would think that with like bigger artists, they would like want everyone to be super well rested, you know. But it seems like everyone I talk to, it's like, yeah, working with big artists, it's like you're you're gonna not sleep for for days or weeks or whatever, and it's just that's part of the gig. But you'd think that they would want more people rested. Th- there was a, there's a whole kind of culture of audio engineers that don't ex- that are very rare nowadays, I should say. So. Nowadays, most engineers are also producers, and, and they have a certain degree of control. Like a producer has a little more control over the 
the booking and the scheduling and the how long the sessions are and stuff like that, which studio you're at, and is it a studio where you're paying a thousand dollars an hour, or, or or you know a thousand dollars a day or whatever, or is it a studio where like the the that the producer owns where it's really you're not on the clock so to speak quite as much, but in those days. You know, the studio was $1,500 a day or whatever. It was really expensive. And and the audit, there was an engineer who had a contract with the label, you know, or a contract with the band and whatever. And then I'd, um, for, for the last two years I was at CRC, I was working with the same guy, Phil Bonanno was his name. And so we did, he was a big producer at that time in Chicago. And I just worked with him on all his stuff. And... He would generally go home at 10 o'clock at night, and then I'd work as late as the band wanted to work. So sometimes that was 2 a.m. or whatever. So I, he worked quite a few hours, but I just worked a crazy amount of hours. And uh, so that, that whole—you still see that scenario happen in, in big cities, but I think it's a little less common nowadays than it used to be, um, mm-hmm. where, where someone's just constantly booked. But and because budgets are lower, I mean, these a lot of times these were million dollar budgets for a record and stuff like that. But obviously, that's less common now. But anyway, to get to the rest of it, basically, um, started Gravity in 1993, and um, and basically was producing, engineering, mixing everything for the first number of years, and I st- slowly built a staff and. Eventually built another studio in the in that location, so we had two. And um, I I lived in front at, uh, for the first number of years. I bought the building in like year two because it was in a rough neighborhood and uh, it was somewhat affordable at that time. And then um, just slowly built it up, so it was like you know. Mackie console and ADATs and slowly just built it, built it up. That's awesome. That's very cool. Yeah. And it, it's, it, it's interesting to hear that you said you worked with Steve Albini because one of the things that really caught my attention when listening to uh, your discography is that like, to me, I, th- I think a lot of your productions tend to have this very big natural sound to them. And Steve Albini is often known for that kind of thing, right? It's like, not, it, it's, it's so easy these days for so many people to fall into this rabbit hole of like, overproducing and layering and sampling and lots of editing and all that kind of stuff. But it seems like your productions don't quite have that, you know, like you're, you're, you're definitely tending to lean more on the, on the natural side of things. Um, and I'm curious to know, like, is that something that you feel like you learn from working with Steve or is it just a personal taste? You know, what leads you towards that direction with your productions? Well, you know, um, I suppose there were a number of, a uh, number of engineers that had, had influence over kind of the way I looked at the craft, you know. Um, some of those guys were influenced to me and to Steve, like um, Ian Burgess. Ian was a like a punk rock producer engineer. I think he called himself an engineer, but he also was basically a producer. And um, and he did a bunch of cool records in the '80s, primarily, and then and he worked out of CRC. And I think. Ian recorded Steve's first few art records with Big Black and with his other projects. Um, so Steve learned a lot from him and looked up to him a lot. And I also got to assist for him on his projects. And uh, and, th- and then Ian, in turn, was influenced by some of the other CRC guys. There, there was a, a real culture. And that's another one of those things that 
you hear of and you read about, but it's less common nowadays, is the whole like large studio with many, many engineers, all of whom kind of learn from each other and work on the same projects together. And mm-hmm. um, we, do a, we do a smaller version of that at Gravity. But at CRC, we had four studios and we had, you know, 12 or 10 engineers and whatever. There were a lot of people involved. And, um, and it, there was kind of a totem pole. You know, you had guys like Gus Mosler um, who had recorded Elvis and, and David Bowie and, uh, you know, the list of artists that he'd worked with was just crazy when he worked at RCA in New York. And he was kind of hired to come bring that experience to CRC in like the early 80s. So he was kind of the kind of the chief engineer in some respects at CRC and and everyone got to assist for him at one time or another and um we all got to make dubs for his projects down in the dub room and uh, as well as everyone. So you'd get to hear when when I was first starting out you'd get to hear each of the engineers work pretty clearly from the same set of speakers in the same room because we'd all do dubs. That's what mm. the young guys did. So um you know, I just remember times when you just walk into the room and, and someone would say, oh, is that Chris Sable? Oh, is that Gus Mosler? You know, they'd say, Who's, is that Phil Bonanno? <laughs> because you kind of had a sense of what their work generally sounded like. And you can, and, uh, and each of those guys had tricks. And, and myself and a number of the other sharp young guys were taking lots of notes. And, you know, by the time I got done with CRC, I'd worked there three years, 100 hours a week for three years. But I, I had a huge a notebook just crammed with all these different engineers, some of whom were at CRC and then some who came in from the coasts and were famous engineers in London or LA or New York or whatever. And they'd come in for a week or a month. So it was like a big body of work and a big body of technique and uh, Mike choice and Mike Prees and kind of a lot of aha moments. Like I, I look, I've always looked at engineering as just like a, almost endless line of aha moments where you just <laughs> absolutely realize like, Oh wow. Now that I, now that I understand that the relationship between my kick drum and my bass guitar is going to be better forever, you know, <laughs> because now I've figured that or, or, And then there's your first time you start using tape, whether it be two inch or half inch your first time you start using that, you realize, Oh, it's, it's having this effect on the sound which is unique and really helpful for certain instruments and somewhat helpful for others, you know, or whatever. Mm-hmm. But I'm off, I'm down my rabbit hole. Where were we? No, well, we were just talking about like, you know, how your productions tend to have that big natural sound. And uh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think a starting point for that is a, a belief in the importance of the room mics um, for drums. So um, at CRC, we had. We had multiple live rooms. You know, when you think about New York sound, the ceilings are lower because there many of the studios were on the 16th floor or whatever. And, and um, so you'd have like 10-foot ceilings. And then by the time you built up the floor and built down the ceiling, you were at nine feet. So there's all kinds of records that were made in New York that have this uh, limited kind of boxy live room and so the guys are more likely to lean on reverb, or at least were in the 70s and 80s and maybe the 90s. Whereas in, when you get into places like Chicago, the real estate's a little more affordable. And, the, and uh, so you could find buildings 
it had a little bit higher ceilings, for instance. So I, I don't know how much that uh, that plays in, but I always thought of that. But basically, CRC had three primary live rooms where, and and our our technique was unless you were doing R and B or soul music or something, those you might record in a drum booth, and, and all the studios had small drum booths, and some of my favorite recordings were like that. But for a lot of the stuff, um, you'd record the drums in the big room. And I think the sound of a lot of music that's done in Chicago um, by all by everyone, it's just a different flavor for each guy. But basically, one of the things that they have in common is using the room mics more than in more than guys did in New York, for instance, and uh, especially on the drums. So drums tended to have kind of a believable sound quality to them rather than sounding canned rather than sounding manipulated they tended to sound more open and then um i think there's a a bit of that involved kind of throughout there's more room sound on other instruments as well um and so that probably plays into that but um yeah i guess that's what pops into my head no that that makes sense right it's like if you're going to try to make something sound natural it's it's what more natural can it be than the sound of the room of that, you know, with that drum kit playing in there, right? Um, mm-hmm. But where I guess, you know, these days with so many people adding samples to everything, it, it seems like things are becoming less and less roomy. Or, or if they are roomy, they're like very, you know, sample dependent. Like, you know, often the people right. will use samples that have all this room reverb built into it and, and that becomes the sound of it, right? It's like typically tighter drums with like roomy samples, I guess. Um, so yeah, it's, it's interesting and it makes sense. Um, as far as like you were talking about like the size of the room and how the height makes an impact and you know you said typically it's like these bigger rooms um like wh- what kind of rooms like what size rooms were you typically working in like and and do, are there any tricks that you can suggest for people who might be working in smaller rooms to to get a bigger sound out of it sure i mean they they vary a great deal um but basically um i would say generally you're once the construction's done and you've you know, raised the floor and lowered the ceiling, um, they would still have generally 12 foot or more height and um, a width of, uh, in most cases, you know, 25 to 30 feet wide by 40 to 50 feet long, something so like yeah, that. So, yeah, those are big rooms. <laughs> yeah. But for gravity, you know, we're, uh, we're in a normal Chicago-sized lot. And so we just, when I built the studio, like I said, I was 24 years old and we worked with what we had. So as it ends up, our, our room is more like 22 by 40 with 11, 11 foot ceilings. Okay. And um, so the, um, those dimensions actually, as I later realized, line up pretty well with the recording room at, at uh, Motown and I think Stacks also. Cool. So like these these studios that recorded so many projects, you know, they all have this kind of strange thing in common, these rectangular rooms. Mm-hmm. But um, in terms of how to make the most of it, I think I'm a, I'm a pretty big fan of getting some, um, some uh, deadening material on the ceiling. Unless you've got uh, ceilings above 12 feet, ceiling height above 12 feet, then chances are strong that you're going to benefit from kind of deadening the ceiling or something along those lines because the you're gonna otherwise your symbols are gonna kind of bounce off the ceiling and and um, if the distance between the floor 
to the micro to the overheads, for instance, and then the distance from the overheads to the ceiling is similar. You're asking for some trouble, I think, in terms of. Uh, I don't know if I, I'm not an acoustician, but I don't know. So I don't know if it would be considered water echo or what you would call it, but it um, can be tricky to deal with. So you've got to kind of choose your mics carefully. Like I, I love ribbon mics, but so many of them are figure eight. Mm-hmm. And you, those sometimes can be tricky as overheads if you have low, smaller ceiling, lower ceilings, for instance, stuff like that. I think trying to be real honest about, like sometimes you, you um, start, like uh, I, I've worked mostly at Gravity for a long time now, but on instances where I've worked in other rooms, sometimes I'll set up mics optimistically for the room mics. And sometimes it's like, well, they sound like a bathroom. <laughs> you know, it sounds like really, they're really uh, tight echo that's almost distracting. And it, it's probably not going to work on too many of the songs that I'm doing with this particular project. So then you just got to be prepared to, to say, well, this, the room mic uh, approach is probably not going to work on this project or this song or whatever. And, um, and then there's lots of creative ways and subtle ways to use different techniques to gain something that's similar. Like um, in a pinch, I don't mind uh, the, the UA... Uh, what is it? The, there's a room plug-in. So like the Ocean Way ones? Ocean Way, yeah. Like yeah. Yeah, I don't mind that. I think there's if it, it takes a while to kind of dial it in, but I think that can uh, that can be helpful. And there, there's always that temptation to want something to work, and but you've also got to be prepared for to be honest about whether it's working or not, and then to Fair. jump ship on it if it's not, you know. Yeah, yeah. What about with um, stuff like compression on room mics? Is that something that you would tend to lean on as well to to get a little bit more of that room sound? Yeah, you know, um, sometimes um, sometimes I'll do like the slow attacks, fast release thing on the compression on the room mics to get up a little bit of the size to to lift. Um, over the last five or seven years, I've started to use less and less compression. Uh, on drums when I'm tracking. I, I used to use quite, I used to use, I'll put a compressor on almost everything when I was tracking. And then I don't, I think it was an interview with Jason Caruso, maybe, or, or, or Michael Beinhorn or something a number of years ago where he was asked about the drum sound on Soundgarden, on Black Hole Sun, you know, that song. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those drums sound amazing. Yeah, it's a terrific sounding recording and the drum sound exceptional. And, um, you know, it was either on a interview or maybe I, I did have a nice conversation with Beinhorn years ago. Might have been during that. But what, whatever the case, uh, the long and the short of it was that they weren't using compression during recording. And the concept was, why would you want to introduce all these variations on on where the envelope bends? You know, like uh, if you're trying to get impact, you want all of them to kind of respond in concert and so with that in mind primarily the the compression that you'd hear at least would be the compression that was put on the whole kit or Mm -hmm. in in the modern world it would be on like the the uh, routing folder or the aux drum bus or something like that you know the the drum sub mix or whatever so when i started to to do that i felt like that was um more organic sounding and uh to lean on that so i i i've got pretty specific ideas about mic pre's mics and and the, how i set stuff up 
But when it comes to compression, I'm, I don't, I'm not doing a whole lot of compression with drums. That's awesome. Well, and it, it kind of also would force you to really rely on mic positioning a lot better and like choosing the right mics and all that kind of stuff to, to get that sound that you ultimately want up front rather than having to rely on additional processing to get it, you know? So, yeah, no yeah. doubt. And, and, you know, the, the other thing that I think is valuable is spending time getting used, getting used to, uh, to tuning drums and getting them to sound good acoustically before you even get in there. I've learned that the hard way over the years, you know? Yeah. Makes a big difference. And most engineers don't know how to, most drummers don't even know how to tune their own kits. <laughs> it's true. And that's one of the tricks is that, it, you, you know, if you want to want to lower the number of variables, you know, learning how to tune drums is a, awfully helpful and it's a big deal. Absolutely. <laughs> well, one thing I was curious about is that, like, with so much music, modern music these days, becoming so heavily sampled and, you know, kind of, you know, for lack of a better way, like, overproduced. I, I, I find overproduced is, like, a, a word that I don't really like because it's hard to describe what that means. But, but you know, like, introducing a lot of, like, post-processing after the fact and, and making mm -hmm. things sound larger than life and, you know, not very realistic, I guess. Um, yeah. With so much music going in that direction, do you ever feel like an obligation to lean into that style and, and to, to kind of follow those trends? Or is it just that at this point in your career, people know you for the sound that you have and, and that's what it is? No, I, I actually, I use samples on half of the productions. Um, and I, I, I kind of enjoy mixing those in. I, I like, I like happy artists. <laughs> I like uh, when, when <laughs> that's kind of the key to business, right? Like, yeah, <laughs> I like uh, I like them to be wow. Those sound great. So when you want wow, then sometimes you can achieve it with just the raw mics, and um, and some you know drummers are sensitive to samples. They're like, oh well, something's some some shenanigans going on there. Yeah, yeah. But um, but there are also art artists that really want impact for instance on on more aggressive styles of music that and if it's a if it's an aggressive style of music there's a a, a likelihood I'll use samples or integrate samples sometimes it's you know 60 80% sample and 20 to 40% uh, original mic sometimes sometimes it'll just replace something completely but usually I'm mixing them together some and um but they, they can uh, make a big difference. But the, it's just the kind of thing where um, there's a lot of stuff to learn about how to integrate samples. And you know, so much of it's got to do with you know, latency. And, and uh, you know, if you're using different plugins on different drums, you introduce the possibility that there'll be differences in latency, you know, between the parts. And that'll create phase. And phase problems will take away impact and those sorts of things uh, are some. It brings up a lot. A, a there's a little bit of a can of worms that comes along with um, implementing samples, but it's sort of fun too. So um, I think sometimes if you um, if you don't involve samples, you're less likely to get what the artist is looking for. You just kind of got to follow what you think they want to hear. It's true. Yeah, especially because, you know, that's they're listening to so many other songs on the radio and whatnot, and so they're used to that sound. So, you know, you kind of have to lean into what they're used to and, and what they're going to be comparing your music or your your productions against, right? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. 
Um, cool. Well, and another thing that I really liked about your productions, aside from that big natural drum sound of it, um, one thing I think you do really well is with with your with regards to your background vocals, which like to me, it seems like you have a really great knack for getting them to sound really big and really wide and, and clear. And they always seem to work really well with the lead vocal. Um, and I'm curious to know, like, do you feel like you do anything outside of the norm when it comes to background vocals or do you just pretty much rely on panning? Well, I'm, I'm a real stickler about intervals you know when i'm producing i'll just, i don't i don't you know parallel no parallel force and you know certain th- things from a theory standpoint but um you know if you choose the right notes it makes a huge difference and i'll um if there's just one background vocal or one harmony for instance i might just pan it a little bit from the center um but if i've got two harmony parts, then I'll widen them a little. And if there's four, I'll widen them further. So I'll kind of um, be real cognizant of the balance where I, I don't want the vocal, the background vocals to draw too much attention, but I also want them to, uh, to be clear. I like to hear the notes, you know, and um, I'm also um, a fan of leaning on Melodyne a little bit more on the background vocals than I do with the lead vocal. You know, so on some projects, I'll melody the lead vocal a certain amount, um, but but then with the background, I might be twice as involved with the background vocals because I find that if the vocal if the t- pitch is is pretty close to spot on, it's going to take less of the attention away from the lead vocal, and and that's a big part of what I'm always thinking about when I'm mixing is who's the lead character, who's the most important melodic entity in this four bar section and it's usually the lead vocal mm-hmm. so if it's the lead vocal then if the lead vocal's perfectly tuned and the timing of it is right on the grid it's going to melt away a little it's going to be less human and less uh, relatable but if it's a little head a little behind a little out of tune all those things make it more human and draw the attention naturally from the listener and so it makes it a more kind of intimate more personal listening experience the relationship between the lead vocalist and the listeners it's easier to accomplish that and then the background vocals you know i, I look at those as as being um supplemental you know something that are, are a second fiddle to the lead vocal you know yeah now that's a really interesting point that you bring out too because i think a lot of people would have that tendency to want to just make everything perfectly in tune right it seems like it seems like the right move to make but um yeah you're absolutely right that there there needs to be that contrast between your lead and your background so you know how, however you can do that in a way that sounds natural makes sense um yeah. so as far as you said that you'll lean a little heavier on melodyne for background vocals is it do you do that more from like just a tuning perspective in terms of like making those notes like perfect to the grid, or do you like rely on like the format tool in Melodyne? Because I know a lot of people do that, like they'll maybe tune their background vocals a little bit more with that kind of tuning effect, you know? Um, yeah, I don't like to actually hear the um, the technology. I don't I don't like to hear auto tune or Melodyne or whatever mm-hmm. waves tune, whatever you're working on. I, um, so basically, I'll I'll allow it to scoop from flat or sharp at the beginning of the note and I'll sometimes allow it to fade out a little out of tune at the end but I like the the core of the of the note when it's being when it's the loudest that's where I'm focusing on it being more in tune during those spots yeah it makes sense for sure do you ever rely on things like um 
like wideners or like chorus or that kind of stuff to, to get more of that width on your vocals as well? I used to use, um, I, I'm not a big, I think wideners are really a, a asking for trouble kind of in some respects. Um, yeah. Cause a lot of them play with the phase and I've, I've had the experience in Chicago. They're some of the main radio stations. Um, some, when they're driving their transmission lines, they split their stereo signal into dual mono and then they basically turn it back into stereo at the transmitter. And so when that happens, it, uh, anything that's like completely on the sides will be lost. <laughs> so I found that out the hard way a long time ago. So I think you're, anytime you push the widening too much, there's a chance that you may not be completely compatible with certain radio stations. So that's a concern. But, um, but when it comes to vocals, let's see, wideners, not so much chorus. I, I, back in the day, I was a big fan of the AMS uh, digital delay. Um, you could basically uh, uh, set two different delay times, one of which was a, a little slower and the other which was a little faster, and pan those left and right and create this kind of wide, I suppose it was widening effect in a certain way. But it was with regard to pitch. And the H3000, Eventide H3000 had a, a version of that that I also used. And um, so I would mess around with that kind of pitch, warbly pitch uh, vocal effect for a while. But then I got tired of that. So I'm a little more conservative, I guess, with um, vocals in that respect. Is I'm, I'm a fan of kind of getting the pitch where I want it in advance with Melodyne or whatever. And then... At mix, I'll I'll have maybe one or two delays, and then one or two reverbs that are uh, oftentimes a more traditional, you know, eighths and quarters and plates and stuff like that. Gotcha. Yeah, like one one song that comes to mind when I when I think of that kind of really wide chorusy kind of sound of yours is is uh, Salt's Seether. Um, to me, that's got such a like. I don't know if that's just like doubling on it, but it it sounds very wide and 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 big. And you know, um, was that something that you might have used? You know, one of the the AMS or the Eventide for? Yeah, I think I was using the H three thousand on that. But the, it's important to point out that on Seether, there were two versions of Seether. So the the quick version of the story is that I saw um, a friend of mine went to college with Nina from Veruca Salt. And so I saw their first show um, at a club that was about a mile away from Gravity. And it was, and their show was like a day before, or two days before I was done building the studio. Hmm. So we're listening to this show and it was their first show. So they were pretty rough. And then in mid middle of their set, I heard they played Seether. And I was just turning to my roommate and I'm like, that is a hit. And so we went up, we went up, met him afterwards. And I said, I'm starting the studio. And that that song, you know, the one, blah, 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 described it. Oh, yeah. I said, I'd like to record just that song. And they were like, oh, okay, sure. So they came over, and the first three days of Gravity um, were three 12-hour days. Because remember, I was still, I'd been working on these million-dollar budgets. So I was used to using all this technique and, you know, spending a long time, not wasting time, but choosing the right gear and, pushing the artist for each performance and all this kind of stuff. And so we spent three 12-hour days just on that song and then made that mix. Again, I think I did use the H3000 pitch thing on that. 
And then um, they got that to Q101, which was a big radio station in town in those days. And they started playing it on the local Chicago radio. And then they had this thing called the cage match, I think it was called, where they'd play bands from all over the country. They'd play their play a song by one band and then play a song by the other band. And people would call in and vote for who won. And whoever won got to go the next night. And so Seether won like the longest, it won for like 42 days or something like that. It was the longest period of time a, a single song had won. Hmm. And um, during those 42 days, the band signed to Minty Fresh slash Geffen Records. And at the, roughly at the end of that period of time, I guess, they recorded their whole record with a buddy of mine who had a studio about two miles away, Brad Wood at Idful. And they re-recorded Cedar uh, for that album, and uh, which was American Thighs. And so, basically, there's two versions floating around. I would suppose that the one that's on American Thighs has been played more. But in Chicago, the original version was contributed to their uh, getting off the ground considerably. Gotcha. No, that's cool. And uh, especially because it was like so early in the, that studio. Um, I do want to get back to, to I, I do want to um, continue to talk about this song, but uh, there was something else you said earlier that I, I want to make sure I don't forget, which was that um, you were talking about um, how the radio, you you found that like anything that was like 100% to the left and right kind of thing would tend to get lost in the transmission. Um, and so I, I wanted to ask, like, when it comes to that kind of stuff, are you do you find that you pan yourself, like you don't go 100% left and right now with your mixes, or do you tend to like mix a little bit more more narrow because of that? I mix a little more narrow, I guess. Um, I mean, I'm all about width. I want I want to hear the width, but um, but yeah, I'll be I'll be more often using ninety ninety two uh, in one direction or the other rather than a hundred um, in terms of my stereo spread there. Gotcha. And yeah. I'm also you know I'm mastering as part of I spend about forty five percent of my time mastering probably, and I've got a dedicated mastering studio that's where i'm sitting now so i've got all the fancy mastering gear and um, my dangerous console has a um a width control that i feel like it's the most transparent so i've, I've played with all kinds of tricks with snm mns or whatever but the, this console does a really subtle nice job of it and I, I think putting it on at the very end um is my favorite place to put it on I mean, there's times when you could theoretically do it during the mix, but I think the decision of, you know, the decision of widening a mix, oftentimes the best choice is, is the vocal loud enough or is it too too quiet or too loud? That's the best time, I think, to make your decision about width because usually the lead vocal's in the center and um, using the width is a real powerful way of helping nail the relative volume of the lead vocal. So that's another reason I'll wait till that point. To, I, I think there are certain things you can't do twice. Like you can't put a limiter, a peak limiter on your mix and then also put a peak limiter on your master because you're asking for trouble in a couple different, for a couple different reasons. Same with width. Like if you play too much with your width during your mix, then you're, then you, it's hard to widen something that's already been widened. So if, if I widen my room mics or my drums or my effects on my vocals or whatever, during the mix and then I either I send it either the mix gets sent to a mastering engineer or I'm myself mastering it but I 
master it a month or two later, and I forget what I had done. And so then I decide, oh, the vocal's a little loud, and the sides can come up a little, and that'll sound nice. So I raise the sides. Well, then I'm wide, double widening it, and then sometimes I'll be compromising some of that stuff, and it'll end up um, getting lost, you know. Gotcha. So it sounds like, you know, when when you're thinking about this stuff, you're really thinking about where it's going to, or what's going to happen in the mastering stage, and, and you know, either you're the one doing it, or you must have a good relationship with other mastering engineers that you hire, that you kind of know what they're going to do with it, so you know how much to do in the mix versus letting them finish it, you know? Yeah, you know, I, I built my mastering studio in 2005, and um, so I've been doing a lot of mastering since then, and and it absolutely has kind of informed me as a mixer about what to focus on and what to not focus on during mixing. And that, that actually, if I'm trying to think of ways to help out people who are getting into mixing and stuff, that would probably be a really good thing for me to point out because I, I do get to master for a wide variety of engineers, some of whom are famous, some of whom are home, home mixers. And one of the things that I end up, or there's a few things that really uh, come up more than occasionally. One is overcooking, you know, stuff. Uh, when I get stuff, uh, the most obvious thing is we tell people um, when they're thinking about sending stuff in, it's like, if you've got a peak limiter on your mix, please bypass it when you export your mix. You know? And um, sometimes people do, and um, and it's helpful. Sometimes they bypass it, but don't listen back to what they're sending us. So sometimes when you bypass your limiter, your gain structure gets out of control and you end up sending something that's distorted because it was being held together by the limiter, right? So there's certain things like that. But uh, but generally the theme is a lot of stuff gets overcooked and it's I think it's got a lot to do with overcompression and what I'll tell folks and, and my own staff because I've got a staff of engineers and interns here try to spread the knowledge and I'll, I'll when I t- teach about compression – most often, um, and you know, uh, Sylvia Massey, meant, we talked about this. We were on a panel together in 2006 at the Potluck Con conference in Tucson. We were talking about, like, what's the, what's the best way to approach compression during tracking versus mixing? And she was saying, well, you, you know, you do your, she's like, I'm a big fan of doing my aggressive compression at mixing and just doing my, my subtle compression during tracking and, and um, and I think kind of what I was thinking was at that time was like, I don't really want to hear, I want to get to the point where I hear the compression during the loud part of the song and then back it off a little so that I'm not sure I hear it. That's usually where I want my compression during tracking. And, and sometimes that's a touch different with like room mics on drums or something like that. But I think it's, it's easy to, I think it takes a while for people to get used to hearing compression Mm-hmm. And like what exactly is going on and what, what's attributable to what, you know? Um, and so once they do, then you start to realize that it's, you can't take up compression off. So it's better to under compress than to over compress. You know? Yeah. That's a really good point. Yeah. And, and uh, I guess it kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier with the drum sound too, right? It's the same, same thing. Um, you know, when you go, when you don't have that compression on your rooms and all that stuff, you're, you're not going to overcook it and it's going to, you know, just give you that, controlled sound i guess that, that that more that more natural sound i guess right yeah and and, and i think 
even you have the capacity to, to create more impact if you want. Because if you've compressed something already and then you want to smack it against a, a bus compressor so all the drums respond, you know, the compressor responds to the whole kit at the same time. Um, it's whoever's sneaking through fastest is going to trigger that compressor. But if so, if you've compressed a bunch of stuff, then you're creating a lot of question marks as to which, who's going to hit that fastest, you know? And that mm-hmm. sometimes is really what determines, you know, the visceral quality of the kind of impact of the compressor is if you've got 11 or 13 tracks hitting the compressor at the same time, it's going to do something different than if everybody has been compressed in advance at slightly in a slightly different way and all the timing relationships, you know, cause that's what compression is kind of doing is changing your timing relationship. So then you're sending a whole bunch of, it's like a, a series of different transients arriving at that compressor at slightly different times. You know? Yep. That makes sense. Um, going back to Veruca Salt, um, it, it sounded like that that song Seether was like really like one of the first things that was recorded at your studio. And, yeah, literally. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I, I'd imagine that uh, having a hit song be the first track that came out of your studio space, it likely would have attracted a lot of new people to to your space, you know, and potentially even maybe attracted a lot of artists that want, wanted a similar sound. Uh, did you find that that was the case with that song when it came out? Somewhat, yeah. I mean, there were so many good bands in Chicago at that time um, that, so they came in and then we got their friends Um so we had like a, a band called Fig Dish that were signed to a major label that we did a song with. And then a band called Loud Lucy, who were also signed to a major label. Both of those signed like, you know, half a million dollar record deals within a month of recording with us. And then um, I think the next one was the Smashing Pumpkins. And so they, they came in and they were already, uh, they'd already achieved some pretty significant success, but they weren't huge. So basically when they came in, um, Cherub Rock was on, so Sammy's Dream was out, and Cherub Rock was on the radio, and it was at like number 30 or something. And they spent two weeks doing demos with us, and during the time they were here, if I'm, they were here twice, each time was like two or three weeks. And I'm trying to remember the timing, which was which, because this was 1994, early 94, I think. And... um they dis- disarm came out on the radio and it shot to the number one pretty quickly. And so like the, the phone calls, we, I just remember we'd work and then there, people would call and be like, you know, it's, it's going to be, it climbed to number eight this week and it climbed to number two this week and stuff. And it was kind of surreal to have this band. that was so popular being in my garage. You know, yeah. Gravity's <laughs> essentially a garage. And, um, so that was a lot of fun, and um, and some of the recordings that we made in there ended up getting onto a couple of their kind of B-side albums and stuff like that. So that's kind of fun. Mm-hmm. I think '95. Um, so we get, we just got a whole bunch of really good, really good bands that found their way to us more or less, um, and then we were able quite often to do recordings that would lead them to getting signed to a big record deal. Um, and that happened. I think we had 15 artists over 10 years that would come and record with us, and we'd treat it like a record. We'd produce, and we'd 
sometimes kind of co-write parts and, you know, really dive in with them. And then those recordings would inspire labels to sign them to big record deals. And then, as so often is the case, the, uh, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd always been reticent to sign contracts with bands because it just seemed like you're asking for asking for all kinds of complex complexities. So, so as a result, um, you know, I'd ask the bands to pay a, our rate, you know, up front, and then, and then they would own their masters, of course, and and then they'd be free agents, you know, when they when mm-hmm. once that was done. So usually there'd be an A and R person or a manager or agent of some kind, and, and they they would see the additional, you know, this band's not tied down to a production contract with Gravity; they're they're mm-hmm. available, and so then they'd have that as an asset to them to uh, find a producer or a studio. Or, that they were tight with or that they knew. And, uh, and so quite often the record would be recorded in LA or New York or London. And that, so that was discouraging at times. We did end up getting two and a half or three of the 15 <laughs> to come back and make records with us. And that was, those were very helpful, you know, but of course, um, yeah, I imagine like, you know, you have all those big bands coming through, it would be good for business and getting people through the door at least. Right. Yeah, well, it kept us. Yeah, we were we've really been busy for thirty years. There's been some low times for sure, but yeah, in a way, you could say it was kind of investing in the um, good goodwill. I guess uh, we got a, a name around the Midwest, or certainly around Chicago, of being straight shooters and friendly, honest people, and everyone leaves happy. Uh, on that extremely rare occasion, someone doesn't leave happy. It, we feel comfortable saying, well, it's your fault <laughs> for whatever the reason is. You're being unreasonable, but that's very infrequent. So, Yeah. Were you like developing these bands or was it just, did it just happen to be that, you know, people were paying attention to Chicago at the time and these bands were just getting picked up? Oh, I, I, um, I, I mean, I developed them in a small sense in that um, some of them I'd play, if there was a singer songwriter, for instance, uh, sometimes I'd play the guitar or the bass on the on the whole project or something like that. Um, sometimes I'd co- I'd write a bridge with them or a pre-chorus or something. So sometimes, or I'd sing background vocals and make up the parts or whatever, do a guitar solo or something. So there was some of that that you could call development. But I wouldn't use the when I think of development, I think of someone who's you know working more closely than I was. You know, because I, when I, I I was basically while I might be making a relatively small amount of money per hour or per day, I was still kind of on the clock. So uh, when someone's developing an artist, chances are they're tied in with them, maybe through a production contract or maybe through a personal relationship, and they're willing to, to work a lot of time kind of off, off the clock mm-hmm. and develop them in that kind of way. I Also, I think when people are developing bands, sometimes they'll contribute to playing live with them, being a member of their band for a short time or helping them book or introducing them to people, you know, gotcha. all those sorts of things. And, and I just, I've always just been kind of record, record you know, producer, engineer guy. Yeah. And, and we've kind of had a specific role rather than trying to offer a wide variety of services, you know. Gotcha. So it's not like you were the one like approaching these labels and being like, hey, check out this recording we just did. And you should sign this band, that kind of thing. Yeah, and to give you an idea about that period of time, like when... About two months after I opened Gravity, um, Billboard magazine had a it came out with a co- the cover story that on the very front page was um, 
Wicker Park colon Chicago or, uh, Alternative Music's Cutting Edge. I think was what it was called. And so, and it was a picture with the map of this small neighborhood that we live in. And there were four or five recording studios in the neighborhood. And then there were some cool, small venues where Nirvana had played and, you know, whatever. There were all these kind of hip little spots. So basically, our tiny little neighborhood, which I had started my studio in, because it was cheap and because a lot of the bands that I was working with had practice spaces nearby, it was all of a sudden like the hippest neighborhood in the world for mute, cutting edge music. So it was that extremely helpful slash lucky situation. I, I'd like to point out, especially when I'm talking to my interns or whatever, I'm like, you know, you, while I was absolutely undeniably lucky, you put yourself the, the way to play it is to always be ready, you know, to always be ready so that when, if you get an opportunity that's unexpected, like I did, that you you're ready and you've been working so hard that you're not you're not outside of your wheelhouse. You know you're prepared to step up to the when someone says, "Oh, you're up to bat," you're not like, "What? Uh, I don't know. I don't even." You're like, "Okay, I I feel comfortable going to bat and 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 maybe you nail it." You know? Yeah, I love that. That's a, a really good point because yeah, so many people just you know whether it's like laziness or I don't know, but some people just think like. It's luck is either going to come to me or it's not, you know, and they, they yeah. just put it in the hands of someone else to take care of that stuff. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right with that. You have to you have to be ready for those opportunities to come your way and be ready to capitalize on them or be ready to to go all in and just do your best job. Um, and you're most likely not going to get those opportunities if you haven't been putting in the time to to make yourself known or to to prepare yourself, I guess. Right. Yeah. 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 Or if you do get the opportunity, uh, you may not even I- identify it as such. You know, <laughs> you may just kind of uh, go over your head, and then you later realize, well, I actually I could have taken the ball and run with it in that situation, but I didn't even consider it because I didn't have the confidence, or I hadn't didn't have the experience, or yeah, absolutely. Well, Doug, I don't want to take up too much more of your time. I have one last question I'd love to ask you, which is when it comes to um, creating great mixes or music that everyone really enjoys what ultimately in your opinion makes a great mix um what ultimately creates a great mix um finding the heart of the song whatever that is and bringing it out and accenting it and framing it and um, not and, and clearing the way for that the message or the vibe or the feeling to reach the listener, and so um, I'm always thinking about like I think that you don't have to have a great singer. For instance, I should re- rewind and say that I think the singer probably needs to be at the core of the mix. And it's almost inevitable. Mm-hmm. And some people really like to mix singers down, and I used to in the 90s kind of mix singers down and stuff. But I think over the years I've come to the conclusion that the singer kind of needs to be front and center. And if they're not that great singers, then you've got to find a way to make them sound interesting and unique. And then if they sound interesting and unique, then that kind of pulls the listener in and makes them kind of like, oh, what's going on here? What's Who's this? What? 
why do they have the balls to put their voice forward, you know? And, and maybe it's because, well, if you listen to the words, they're cool as hell or whatever. Maybe maybe you come to the, – the listener finds a way to relate to it. So basically, um, I'm pretty uh, liberal about um, peeling stuff away. Sometimes artists will send me 120 tracks that are just – every instrument's being played from the beginning to the end. And in those instances um, – you know, I'll be carving away more than half of everything that I'm given, you know. But um, sometimes it's considerably more subtle where there's 40 or 50 tracks and instruments come in and out. And I'll still sometimes, you know, bring in the drums on verse two or bring in the bass later or uh, focus on instruments that the singer or the artist may or may not have realized the uniqueness or the coolness of. And so another piece of the puzzle, I suppose, is at every moment in the song, I want there to be some melodic element. Usually it's the vocals, but certainly there's, you know, 10 or 15% of the song that doesn't have lead vocal. So during those sections, and maybe it's even between words sometimes or between phrases, I want to have a counter melodic element or a straight melodic element come up and present itself in a way that's almost as strong or in some cases just as strong as lead vocal. So if you've got... Uh, if you've got your first verse is over and then you've got four bars before the second verse starts, I'm probably going to look for a melodic or an, maybe mel just an interesting, unique sound. Um, and if there isn't one, then maybe I'll run some relatively simple sound through a delay or a flange or whatever just to try to create some more interest and feature that as, a, as like a character in a movie. So I guess... Um, uh, and, and feature it at a volume which says, I'm leading, you know, pay attention to me while you're waiting for the vocal to come back, <laughs> you know. And uh, I guess I look at the a mix kind of like a director looks at a film. You know, you, wanna, you want the characters to be clear and you want, uh, I think people respond to uh, certainty in a mix. Like if you've got a mix that's um, confusing to listen to, there's... There can be a time and a place for that, but it's the audience is probably going to be smaller, you know, um, or people that the number of people that relate to it's going to be stronger, smaller. I think um, if you sometimes I, I want to make it real clear in each section of the song, I want to make it real clear who who's the main character and and how do I want the listener to feel? Um, it's a, maybe it's sonically manipulative at times. And and I'm and I'm getting those cues from the lyrics and from the artist, mm -hmm. and um, but I um, but I want to um, kind of guide use the mix to guide the listener into listening to whichever part of the mix is important for them to understand in order to get the same feeling from the song that the singer is trying to create and that I'm you know, interpreting. Of course. Yeah, I love that. And it's like, to, to your analogy of a director, it's like, no one wants to watch the B-roll. They want to see all the action. So it's like, make make the song interesting. Have have yeah. have things that people are drawn into. Um, so yeah, I love I love that answer. And I think that's a, a very good lesson and something that people should definitely be considering as they, as they work on their tracks. It's like, try to make your tracks sound exciting. Like, find ways to do it. Or shorten up songs if they're too long and nothing's going on, that kind of stuff. Like, find, find the fat to trim, I guess. Yeah, and trimming fat's huge. I mean, I, I'd rather have, at any given moment in the song, I'd rather have four or five instruments that all sound deliberate than to have 10 instruments 
that are all there because no one had no one really thought about do I really need to mute that or do I really need to delete that or do I really need to play that in the first place? Yeah. Um, I think that's a big word for my for for the way when I think about production and mixing is making stuff sound deliberate. You know, yeah. You want, I want I want it. It doesn't have to sound. It doesn't have to be grand sounding or anything like that. It just needs to sound like it's supposed to be there. You know. Yeah, of course. I love that. Well, I think that's a perfect spot to wrap up. Um, if people want to learn more about you or follow you online or maybe potentially work with you, what's the best way for them to do that? Our studio managers, um, uh, Ramsey and Minji, are uh, here Monday through Saturday and um, at, you know, here in Chicago. And uh, it's info at gravitystudios.com is our website. Awesome. Or email, right? Email, and the yeah. gravitystudios.com is the website, yeah. Perfect. Right on. Well, I'll definitely include those in the show notes too so people can click on those easier. Right on, man. Thank Doug. Thank you so much for being on here. I really appreciate you taking the time to do this. And um, yeah, it was great to learn more about uh, your process and what goes on in, in your production. So, so again, thank you very much. My pleasure. So that was my interview with Doug McBride, and I really enjoyed that. I loved learning more about his process. And I also really enjoyed when he was talking about background vocals and tuning vocals. And I thought that he brought up a really good point about creating contrast between your lead vocal and your background vocal. And I thought it was also interesting that he said that he'll tend to lean heavier on Melodyne for background vocals and make sure that the background vocals are more polished, but then he'll leave his lead vocal maybe with slight tuning differences and that kind of thing and how that creates the contrast. Personally, I've always gone pretty heavy with my background vocals on Melodyne, but I've tended to lean more towards using the format tool to give everything that kind of tuned sound. But I like Doug's approach to, you know, rather than leaning on that format sound, which can sometimes give you that auto-tuned kind of effect, you know, just letting the lead vocal have the natural tuning in there, I think that that's a great way to create that contrast. So definitely something that I'm going to be implementing in my mixes for sure. And I also really enjoyed when he was talking about room sound and how to get that natural vibe off of your room mics and how he doesn't really use compression anymore on drums. I thought that was a really interesting thing to hear because I know a lot of other engineers that will tend to slam their room mics with lots of compression. And, you know, maybe they do it in post, maybe they do it during tracking, but it seems to be a pretty common thing that a lot of engineers do. So it was great to hear someone who has a different perspective on that and why he chooses to do it the way he does. So yeah, I really enjoyed that episode. I hope that you did too. If you did, please make sure to like and subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. It definitely is really helpful for people to see what your feedback is on this podcast so that other people know if it's the right podcast for them to listen to. So if you're on the Apple Podcast app, definitely make sure to leave a review. That would be amazing and helps out the podcast quite a bit. And lastly, if you're currently working on new music of your own and you're feeling stuck with it, maybe it's not quite sounding to the standard that you want your music to sound like. Maybe, you know, when you listen to your favorite artist, it just kind of feels weak in comparison. Well, if you're looking for one-on-one help to help you get your music sounding just as good as your favorite records, I would love to help you out throughout that process. Inside of my coaching program, Amplitude, I work one-on-one with each of my students, helping you get the feedback and coaching that you need in order to get your tracks to that next level. And I work back and forth with you. We go into your mix. I give you specific actionable notes on what to do with EQ, compression, volume, automation, whatever your songs need to help them get to that next level. The whole point of this program is to help you complete your music, feel way more confident throughout the process, and have the speed and clarity with your workflow so that 
you're not guessing at what to do anymore. Instead, you know exactly what to do and what steps to take and do it quickly. So yeah, if you're interested in learning more about this program, make sure to visit masteryourmix.com forward slash amplitude and you can find all the information on there. And I'd love to hop on a call with you to learn more about your goals with your music production to make sure that I can help you. I only work with people who I truly believe I can help in this program. So definitely, if you're interested in learning more, visit masteryourmix.com forward slash amplitude and let's hop on a call and I'd love to help you out. All right, with that said, we've reached the end of this episode. Thank you so much for sticking around to the very end, and I can't wait to chat with you in the next one. We'll talk soon. Have a good one. Thanks for listening to the Master Your Mix podcast. To have your questions answered, submit your questions to questions at masteryourmix.com. Please go to iTunes and subscribe and leave a review. And for more information on how you can improve your mixes, visit masteryourmix.com.